and we are recording in progress recording with Ben Abelo, Dr. Benjamin Abelo, and Mr. Ray McGovern on Thursday, February 16th, 2023 at 2.04 p.m. Eastern Time. If anybody's wondering why you can hear horns and traffic, it's because I have a window open because it's hot in here. That's not important, but that's what's on my OCD mind. Um, you both have been on here. Uh, uh, Ben's been on here once before. Mr. McGovern's been on here, I, I don't know, five, six times before, but um, never have we had the, the meeting of the minds that we have today. And- when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. By that, I mean you two and not myself. I'm just here to record and watch you guys go at it. Uh, With that, though, for all the new listeners, uh, Mr. McGovern, could you please introduce yourself and then Dr. Abelo? Sure. I'm Ray McGovern. Uh, I guess uh, most people know me as a uh, a Russian, a Soviet specialist uh, working for the CIA uh, for 27 years toward the end of my career. Uh, briefing the president's daily brief downtown for the early morning briefings of the president's daily brief. Um, after I retired, uh, slapping myself on the back for helping uh, us prevail in the Cold War and thinking that we were in for a peace benefit, uh, I went to work in the inner, inner city of Washington where I had been volunteering and then lo and behold, before Iraq, the attack on Iraq, I found that my former colleagues were actually falsifying information to justify a war of aggression. Doesn't get worse than that. I started speaking out on that. We formed a little group called Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. And we've been trying to uh, spread some truth around for 20 years against pretty, pretty high odds uh, when you think that the corporate media, although initially very, very willing to to accept our dissident views, uh, turned out to uh, pretty much exclude us from from any play. So what we say now uh, appears on alternative media on shows like yours, Tommy, and I'm delighted to be with you and more delighted still to be with Dr. Ben, uh, Ben having written the book, the the digestible book on uh, Russiagate and how Russian hacking and all the rest of it was a big fraud. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ben, could you please introduce yourself? Sure. Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here again, Tommy. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. And a special pleasure to be with Ray, who's I've learned a great deal from and continue to learn from, and it'll be thrilling to ask him some questions. Um, So just about me personally, I guess, um, I don't have the same kind of uh, esteemed background that Mr. Govern has, but I I studied history as an undergraduate, European history, and have an interest in trying to get to the bottom of historical arguments. Um, I uh, worked in Washington, D.C. for a couple of years, actually back in the 80s uh, when Ronald Reagan was in office. I worked on nuclear arms issues. Um, I lobbied and 
lectured and did some debating and writing uh, on a position that was then called the nuclear freeze, which was basically a bilateral uh, verifiable freeze on deployment and development of nuclear weapons uh, that was ostensibly to be followed by uh, you know, bilateral cuts that would be negotiated. Anyway, I, I was completely immersed in that world and that way of thinking and reading and studying for a couple of years, but then moved on. I uh, went back to school and did some pre-med courses, went to medical school at Yale, and um, I wrote a couple of medical textbooks, uh, then got involved in doing research and writing on religion and psychology and other areas. I never practiced medicine. Um, but as the Ukraine war kind of heated up, I <clears throat> started noticing uh, certain similarities to things I had observed when I was in DC. And I felt myself, uh, you know, wanting to throw myself back in the fray in some sense. Um, not just because I found it intellectually intriguing, but because it was rather terrifying. Uh, I saw the, you know, the kind of the growing risk of a direct U.S.-Russian war. Uh, when I was in D.C. the first time, it was the U.S.-Soviet question. Um, but, uh, of course, anytime there could be a direct conflict of that nature, you run a huge risk of a nuclear escalation. And I started um, kind of trying to, in a sense, retool myself. Uh, refamiliarize myself with some of the issues. I mean, on a deep level, I'd never forgotten anything, but um, on a kind of superficial level, I hadn't really kept up with events. Um, and I, the book that I wrote, uh, How the West Brought War to Ukraine, really started just as a uh, op-ed, which kind of grew too big to be an op-ed, and then it turned into a media uh, article on the Medium platform. And then I said, oh, what the heck, this should be a little book. And I did it. Anyway, um, I'm, uh, that's, that's pretty much me. I've been speaking. The book has been translated pretty widely now. It's out in, uh, it's out in German, where it's actually like a number one Amazon bestseller in a bunch of relevant categories. It's coming out this month, actually, in uh, Italian and Polish and Slovenian. There's a Danish translation on the way. There may be a Dutch one very soon, trying to find a publisher in France and other places. And obviously my goal here is um, to try to influence policy, not just in the U.S., but in uh, other NATO countries and in Europe. And um, so yeah. I was, was going to say, and the, and the link to that book will be in the description <clears throat> for the listeners. Yeah, I, I was just going to uh, suggest that you give us the, the name of that book and uh, uh, sure. maybe show us an exemplar if you have an extra one. Oh. I'll, just, I'll hold it up if anyone can see it. How uh, the West brought war to Ukraine. Yeah. yeah. Just a little book, about 80 pages or so. I don't remember exactly. Very readable. Uh, just to try to give a quick primer, in some sense, on what I think is going on and a kind of a call to um, uh, take a different approach uh, in, in a kind of uh, intellectually rigorous, but I think kind of impassioned way. So you thanks, say, Ray. You say little book, Ben, but it's a big <laughs> a big book <laughs> that's the advantage of being able you can read it at one or for me a slow reader two readings and it has big implications so uh you know i uh i, I strongly advise those of you who are coming into this a little bit new uh to read the benefits of how ben got up to speed uh uh, on current events uh, by uh, doing some modicum of research and putting it all together in a highly understandable 
Ben, you don't you don't write like a doctor. Are you sure you're a doctor? <laughs> well, I never practiced, <laughs> and I kind of diverged from the medical path during medical school when I started writing textbooks. So, uh, well, you write well. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Well, thanks. I I do my best to be clear and uh, you know with some power to it as best I can. Anyway, uh, thank you guys for pitching the book. Um, let me jump in. We got limited time, I guess, um, and I want to get on to. You know, the real reason why I'm eager to be here right now uh, is not to pitch my book, but to um, ask Ray some questions. Um, now, let me say that, uh, and I'll just kind of say this both to both of you, but also to um, Tommy's audience, which is, you know, some of these questions there, I'm, some of them get pretty personal. And, uh, you know, Ray will decide how personal he wants to respond to any given question. Or you can skip questions if he wants. Um, and uh, some of them I'm actually, you know, I'll reveal a little something about myself that maybe I wouldn't be considering part of my pitch on uh, the war. Uh, so hopefully the audience will take some of this as, you know, we're, we're kind of just talking here, not so much trying to make a case hmm. um, and might even say some things that will look bad, you know, and about ourselves. <clears throat> but uh, it, it is impossible to go through a thousand ninety episodes wow. without eventually <laughs> eventually making someone you cannot please everyone I, i'll just throw that out there as a disclosure it is impossible not even my mom likes every episode all right and so if i can't win that over then i don't know who i can win over so just yeah don't don't worry don't overthink it too much okay well great thanks um you know some of these are going to start off as rather conventional and then they'll kind of slip into a little more of a different stream of thought sure and uh let me just say ray again i don't i don't know the exact number i have like 23 questions here so um, maybe do the best you can. And first, if you just want to skip one, skip it because we got plenty to follow. Um, second, uh, you know, keep them pretty brief if you can, just so we have time for other ones. Each one of these probably could be uh, come a subject for a whole episode. But um, so um, the first one is, uh, as I said, starting with real conventional kind of questions. Do you think the Ukraine war was deliberately provoked by the West? That is by and large, that it was actually an attempt to draw Russia into the invasion? Or was it simply that it was, let's say, provoked unintentionally by a kind of combination of stupidity or miscalculation, or even well-intentions, but miscalculation, and then after that happened was exploited in order to weaken Russia, which is now one of the stated goals? I wonder what your thought is about that. Well, Ben, um, this is a really good question. Uh, I don't have a definitive answer to it. What I do know is that there was a high point in Russia-US relations, and that came in September of 2013. In a word, Vladimir Putin pulled Barack Obama's coals out of the fire, his chestnuts out of the fire, if you will by persuading the Syrians to have their whatever were left of their chemical weapons destroyed uh, under UN supervision on a US ship specifically outfitted for such destruction. It was amazing uh, because Obama bragged about this uh, to his unofficial biographer, Jeffrey Goldberg, about a year later when he said, you know, <laughs> I didn't go by the Washington playbook, Obama's words. I went ahead and I said, well, Congress should have a voice in whether we wage another war. And then when we had this deal with the Syrians, 
I was off the hook, okay? So everyone was advising me, no, no, you have to start an open war against Syria. Everyone. I went up to St. Petersburg, talked to Vladimir Putin. We found a way out of this without war. Now, as this was going on, uh, Vladimir Putin wrote an op-ed for the New York Times. Oh, check it out. It appeared on the 12th of September, 2013. And he said, you know, I, uh, I'm really, I really welcome the growing trust. Got it? Trust. Not only between our two countries, but between President Obama and me personally. I have to say that there's one basic thing that we really disagree on, and that is, I don't think there are exceptional countries. President Obama just last week, says Putin, or writes Putin, claimed that the U.S. was exceptional. No, I don't believe that. I think there are, there are small countries and big countries. There are countries closer to democracy and those struggling toward democracy. I think when God looks down at all countries, he sees them as equal. End quote. Whoa. Uh, can you hear me? Okay, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, can, no I'm, I, I'm listening. Yeah, I can. I can hear you. I'm. I'm. This is interfered here. Okay, so yeah. here we are the 12th of September, 2013. The chemical weapons were destroyed. Growing trust. Now I have to add here that. But I was told at the time that Putin penned that last paragraph in the op-ed himself. Confirmation of a kind came about three years later, when on a separate interview on another subject, he was asked this question about U.S. exceptionalism, and he said precisely the same thing in precisely the same words. <laughs> no. Okay, so now the people who were panting for war against Syria, the so-called neocons. Uh, they were up in arms, and I had a personal encounter with Wolfowitz and Lieberman and some of the others at the top of the CNN building in Washington. They were destroyed. I can tell the whole story later, but wow. They didn't get their war on Syria. And worse still, Obama is hearing Putin saying there's growing trust. Suffice it to say that it took them about six months, but they arranged a coup in Kiev. A coup, a coup d'etat. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It was appropriately described as the most blatant coup in history. Why? Because it was divulged two and a half weeks before the coup on YouTube, which carried a private conversation, they thought private, between Assistant Secretary of State at the time for European Affairs, Victoria Noland, and our ambassador in, um, in Ukraine, in Kiev, Jeffrey Pilot was his name, okay? They're plotting the coup, they're saying who's gonna take over, and they add at the end, and Joe Biden will come in to solidify this deal if we need them. How do we know that? Well, I talked to uh, I, I talked to Jake Sullivan just now, and he said, says Nolan, 
He says that they'll come in, that Biden's good for it. He'll come in and solidify, he'll glue it together. Okay. So I thought there wouldn't be any coup. There was a coup. The point is that Putin <laughs> apparently felt the same way I did. The coup was, in intelligence parlance, we say the coup was blown, right? Okay. So there's not going to happen. And yet it did happen. Where's Putin? He's in Sochi at the Winter Olympics. He comes back and he gathers his security and foreign policy advisors around the table. He says, what do we do in the face of this coup? They're already saying they're going to join NATO. They're forbidding Russian as, a, as a, uh, an official language. Are we going to let them take Crimea? Where our only all-weather, all-year-round naval base is? I can't do that. So what do we do about Crimea? Well, we can't let Crimea or Ukraine become part of NATO. And so what happens? Uh, they arrange a plebiscite in Crimea. It was a done deal. Everyone knew that it would go 90% for Russia. They say 97%, uh, whatever. And so they annex Crimea. Now, the important thing here, not many people know this, that uh, Crimea was annexed a month later. And a month after that, uh, in celebrating this annexation, Putin got up and he said, you know, uh, we were motivated in annexing Crimea, and not only by the prospect of Ukraine, including Crimea, entering NATO, but more important was the prospect of having medium-range ballistic missiles right on our border in Crimea more important. So let me just leave it at that. Uh, this is, uh, well, I can't leave it at that because there's the other question, but mark that, okay? More important are the emplacement of medium-range ballistic missiles on the periphery of Russia, just as in Cuba, we didn't tolerate the, the imposition or the installation of uh, medium-range ballistic missiles in Cuba, 90 months off offshore, okay? So now, the plotters of that coup, <clears throat> Victoria Nuland and the neocons that were really hell-bent and determined there would not be growing trust between Russia and the U.S. Did they expect that the Russians would sit back and say, oh, darn, we lost that gamble. They're taking over Crimea. Oh, God, we had a really nice naval base there in Sivasovol. Uh, if, if they thought that, they were incredibly naive. They're not naive, they're smart. And they said, you know, this will probably force the Russia to do something that we can accuse them of, blacken them, and making sure there's no rapprochement, much less detente between Russia and the United States. And so we know what happened. Whether they fully intended uh, to, uh, to create such a situation that, uh, uh, that what happened, namely the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, finally, would be the only outcome of this. Uh, who can say? Uh, they're arrogant, these policymakers. They're arrogant in the extreme. Uh, I call it hubris on steroids. And I just quote Vladimir Putin, who in another connection, namely China, and why, why the U.S. would take on China when it's engaged against Russia at the same time, he calls that crazy. And he says, you know, this 
can only be attributed to overweening arrogance and a feeling of impunity. So whether it's simply overweening arrogance and a feeling of impunity, we could do whatever the hell we want. Well, the evidence is in, isn't it, with the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline, as soon as Biden and Nolan again learned that it could be done, they started bragging about doing it, for God's sake. As soon as it was done, Blinken, the Secretary of State, said, oh, man, this is a great opportunity to sell more American gas. I mean, hello, you must have a kind of sense of impunity uh, or arrogance or exceptionalism to brag about doing this kind of thing. Now, the, the chickens are coming home to roost in the next few weeks. We'll see if the American and Western media in general can suppress this story. Uh, I wouldn't put it past them to try. I think this time they may not succeed uh, completely. Thanks, Ray. <clears throat> that was a good good one. I'm going to just realign my camera here. I'm trying to get this so that... No, you're good, dude. I'm, I'm, well, Brilliant I'm trying answer. to get it so I'm looking at your eyes more when I'm talking when you're talking no, you're my good, camera dude. is way at the top of my screen now you're good dude um there, so uh yeah <clears throat> great <clears throat> uh, and, thank and, you Rick. and I would and I would say Mr. McGovern that was a brilliant answer and keep keep going with those and if we don't get all the questions in today we can just do a part two or part three I, I wouldn't clip your answers because your answers are brilliant yeah well, thanks, Tommy. I wish everyone thought so. <laughs> yeah, you got me. I'm your number one fan. That's all you need. Forget everybody else. Yeah. Well, this one's uh, moving into the realm of ethics a little bit, um, which is complicated. So, uh, and this is one where uh, I could draw you into a uh, a self-incriminating answer, uh, but partly because these are things that I'm dealing with as I do podcasts. It's um, uh, how do you view Putin ethically? Uh, and I'm not talking about how he is domestically with his own people. Let's call it a soft, soft authoritarianism over there now. Um, you know, people might argue how soft, how hard, but, but I'm talking about in terms of um, with respect to this war, um, there was certainly a way in which, whether it was the deliberate attempt to draw him in or just a lot of moves that had they been done to the U.S., the U.S. might well have entered the war if people had placed forces on U.S. northern border, for instance. Um, but I wonder ethically how you see him. Do you view him in this context as an evil perpetrator or as an innocent victim of Western provocations or something in between containing elements of both? Um, as I said, this is one that I struggle with a bit. Uh, obviously, the correct answer is he's evil. But um, but uh, but I'm trying to think of this in a way that's nuanced and deals with the reality of the situation. He's you know, he started the war. He's conducting it in some sense. He's the one who's directly involved in killing a lot of people or starting the war on a deeper sense. It was the let's say the U.S. that through a series of moves placed him in a position that he felt that the security of Russia was threatened by. Uh, and yet, perhaps, perhaps he had other choices, uh, which are, uh, you know, may or may not have been effective, but could have done short of starting a war. Uh, and then, of course, he also attempted to 
negotiate a peace settlement in March, even after the war started. He started trying to negotiate one before it started. But kind of taking all this into account, and given that the war has begun and is at kind of full steam now, how do you see him ethically? That's a really good question. And I have to explain that intelligence analysts don't make moral judgments. Now, um, let's pick up from where we left off. Uh, Crimea was seized. And most important, says Putin two months later, was the possibility that medium-range ballistic missiles would be put in Crimea, of all places, as the holes for those, that is, the emplacement, the capsules, as you know, Ben, and you, Tommy, have already been in place in Romania and in Poland. Now, this probably calls for a little bit of explanation. Uh, the U.S. saw fit to put what used to be missiles, uh, or still are missiles, on on warships uh, in these uh, in these sites in Romania and Poland. Now, the problem is that the capsules into which they fit uh, are just exactly the same capsules that you need to launch cruise missiles, offensive missiles, not ABM missiles as they are described, and. As Putin said in late November, sorry, late December, uh, 2001, okay? 21. 21. December to be precise. Oh, 2001. This leaves me, this leaves me with seven to 10 minutes warning time, launch to target to decide whether to blow up the rest of the world, okay? I can't know if they have nuclear weapons on them. That's really the only thing that makes sense. And he said, and if hypersonic, if the U.S. finally gets hypersonic missiles, which they will, says Putin, that will give me five minutes. Now, why do I mention this? Well, I mention this because it's never mentioned elsewhere. He said these things. Are they true? Yes, they're true. How do I know? Do I know about these capsules? No, but I know people who know about these things, like Ted Postel, for example, who was main intelligence advisor to the chief of naval operations, MIT professor of physics, or marriage. He, he said, look, Ray, <laughs> it's no problem. The capsules fit these uh, cruise missiles or, supersonic, or hypersonic missiles. Now, just for your audience, hypersonic missiles, what does hypersonic mean? Well, in my day, and you could tell my day was a way long time ago, uh, Mach was big. You you go at the speed of sound. <laughs> oh, man. Two times the speed of sound with a fighter jet. Oh, man. Uh, hypersonic means six to nine, five, maybe times the speed of sound. Okay. So these are very dangerous weapons. Five minutes from launch to target to hit Moscow to hit their ICBM force. So what am I comparing this to? I'm saying that 60 years ago plus, John F. Kennedy, our president, the president that got me down to Washington when he asked people who had something special to offer, and mine was Russian studies, uh, to, to do something for the country, okay? Sounds corny now but it wasn't then. Anyhow, 
John Kennedy saw that Khrushchev did this gamble by putting offensive strike missiles, medium-range ballistic missiles in Cuba, 90 miles offshore. How many minutes to Washington, D.C.? How many minutes to Omaha, Nebraska, where SAC was? <laughs> I can't pin down anyone, but it's just minutes. It's about 10 minutes, okay? What did, what did John Kennedy do? Well, he didn't even know that some of those missiles had nuclear tips on them. They were, all, they were operational, they were ready to go. But he took a chance, why? Because he saw an existential threat to the United States. And his job as head of the United States was to protect his country. And so he said, Mr. Khrushchev, you gotta withdraw those missiles or else. What else did he do? Did he do anything illegal? Well, sure as hell he did. He called it a quarantine, but it was a blockade. He blockaded uh, Soviet ships from coming anywhere near Cuba. What else? Oh, he, he prepared an invasion force right in the, in the light of day at Key West. I almost was part of that invasion force. I was at Fort Benning at the time as a second lieutenant. Uh, what else? Oh, yeah, he threatened nuclear war. Well, huh, you're not supposed to do those things. So why? Because he saw an existential threat and he sensed that Khrushchev realized, oh, nothing ventured, nothing gained. For the, for the Soviet Union, this is not an existential threat. And so he withdrew. What helped? The fact that they were talking to each other. They had a hotline, okay? They had, it was, uh, it was pretty primitive by our standards, but they could converse with each other. That doesn't exist now. That's sort of a, so what am I saying here? I'm saying that I see uh, Mr. Putin in similar terms, faced with an existential threat to his country before those hypersonic or cruise missiles go into those holes in Romania and Poland and God forbid Crimea or Ukraine, he's going to move and say, nope, this is a red line. We told you that in 2008, more so now that you have those missiles. Niet means niet. Now, what, uh, what was the reaction? Well, the reaction was arrogance, was uh, hubris on spades, was, no, we're going to do it anyway, okay? And they continue to do it. So um, if, uh, if people say to me, well, you know, uh, my God, this was, uh, what Putin did in Ukraine was unprovoked. And I, and I say, well, what planet have you been living on for the last several years? Oh, oh, I see. No, you've been here, but you've just been reading the, the New York Times. Oh, yeah. Well, let me fill you in on something. That's not all the news that's fit to print, okay? Uh, so people are predisposed to think of Putin, as you said, Ben, as evil incarnate. I see him as one that was backed up against the wall, just as JFK was in 1962, and had to decide what to do. He found out that after the coup in Kiev, the charade that's called the Minsk process was admittedly now orchestrated just to buy some time for NATO build, to build up the Ukrainian army. <laughs> How do I know that? Chancellor Merkel, President Hollande, 
President Poroshenko, Nolan, lots of people said, look, <laughs> we weren't serious about that. Uh, we didn't care about 14,000 uh, Russians being killed in, in Donbass. What we want to do is make sure that we develop the Ukrainian army to NATO standards, and then we were going to go forward. So there was that. Were they going to go forward? The OSCE, the off the Office of Security, uh, Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They uh, they recorded a real uptick in artillery barrages from the Ukrainian forces uh, in starting in early February, uh, carrying on, and so here was his Putin, and he's trying to calculate what to do. Okay, looks like the Ukrainian army has now been built up to NATO standards. That's good. That's really good for them. Looks like they're ready to go into the Donbass and take it. My God, what can I do? Coincidentally, Putin is committed to go to Beijing. Why? To help open the Winter Olympics. On the 4th of February, 2002, <laughs> he... Uh, he and, and Xi Jinping, president of China, uh, signed this incredible document which says their alliance has no upper end, okay? They are together on these things. Now, it's clear to me in retrospect that the Chinese gave Putin the go-ahead to go into Ukraine. That is big. I thought so at the time. I didn't think Putin would go into Ukraine without at, without that kind of backing. Uh, in retrospect, given Beijing's reaction in support of what Putin has done, uh, that was that was given. The only, the only condition, as I see the conversation going, was uh, Putin saying to Xi Jinping on the 4th of February, um, all these things are happening in the West, and it looks like they're about to invade the Donbass. It may be that I have to invade uh, to secure Russian-speaking people in the Donbass, uh, what do you think? And Xi Jinping saying, uh, you, I'm, you, I'm here. I'm you here. Mean, right. You mean yeah. after, after the, after the Olympics are over, right? <laughs> no, day after the Olympics are over, uh, Russia recognizes the independence of Lugansk and Donetsk. Next day it's ratified by the, uh, by the Russian legislature, legislature, two days later, the invasion of of, uh, of of Ukraine. So unprovoked, forget about it. It was provoked, okay? Pure and simple, it was provoked. Now, did NATO realize the fix they were going to get? It? No way did they. They they were improvising, and the poof is in the pudding. Now they're running out of ammunition. They're running out of arms. Why are they running out of arms and ammunition? Why didn't they have stockpiles? Well, you know, one might infer from that that they really didn't think there was much of a threat from Russia. And they would have been right on that. Does Russia want to go farther into Western Europe and take over Estonia? I've been in Estonia. I don't know why the Russians want to take over Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. Give me a break. There was not one scintilla of evidence, not only that the Russians uh, wanted to do the imperial thing in the rest of Europe, 
but there was not one scintilla of evidence that it ever entered into Putin's mind that he would take over Crimea until when? Until 22nd of February, 2014, when there was a coup in Kiev and it looked like Russia would lose its only all-weather, all-year-round uh, naval base in Sevastopol, Crimea. Thanks, Ray. That was, uh, that was great. Uh, I, I have just two quick comments. One, uh, Ray had mentioned these um, launch tubes that were ostensibly designed for ABM anti-ballistic missiles that could pretty much launch anything. I, I refer to those in my book. I actually quote from the uh, marketing materials produced and found online by Lockheed Martin, which is the manufacturer of this Mark 41 launcher. And it they say with a great deal of sort of bluster that these, these tubes can handle any missile type. That's one of the, uh, it's, it's a feature, not a bug. Um, so, yeah, but uh, let me interject on that. The yeah. Ted Postal is a good friend of mine. He and others, I asked this question. I said, well, you know, Putin tends that these could be used for, for these offensive strike missiles. Uh, what about that? I said, how, how would they get them in there? <laughs> Postal says to me, Ray, you know, at the end of the day, the sun goes down, it gets dark, right? Right. Uh, it gets dark in, in, in Romania and Poland, too. And they could take the equivalent of a, a, a line repair, electrical line repair truck uh, with one of these missiles, stick them in a hole, stick a new little uh, computer disk in, in the, the computer that controls this, and it will be done. Take a couple hours. Are you with me, Ray? <laughs> so, you know, it's it's real, but Americans don't know this. And how could they, you know, if when I compare Putin and his situation with John Kennedy, for God's sake, St. John Kennedy, well, you you know the kind of reaction I get. But in strategic geopolitical terms, it's it's a direct analogy. And that's why that's why, you know, intelligence analysts and this is not a, a cop out. They're not given to making moral judgments. They're given to looking at the evidence and trying to decide why people do these strange things. And that's my take on that. Sorry, Ben, I'm not trying yeah. to filibuster here. No, 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 that's that's great. And uh, actually, it's very true. I mean, I also, when people ask me similar kinds of questions about the ethics of food, not quite as directly as I did, but um, I, my immediate response is, look, I'm looking for cause and effect. I'm not looking for moral attribution here. Um, but at the same time, I think partly because we're so surrounded by propaganda here in the West I sometimes find myself almost against my will pushing back against it by uh, almost getting imbalanced in my own uh, perspective. It's a it's a strange phenomenon that perhaps because I'm a newcomer to this, Ray, unlike you, I uh, I find myself getting off foot a little bit at moments. Hmm. So it's um, it's interesting. It means you're, means you're human, uh, Ben. I, uh, I, it happens to all of us, and you, you we all need to be, take care about that. Yeah, I guess so. Um, Ray, you've mentioned in a couple of um, uh, whether talks or podcast interviews I've seen that you consider a man named Robert Parry, uh, no longer alive, your mentor. Um, maybe just to start with for the audience, very briefly, just say who he is. But then to really get to my question, my question is, 
I've often wondered, oh, how did you get to know him? And in what sense do you consider him your mentor? Good question. Uh, Robert Perry was a journalist. His father was a journalist. He came from New England, big Boston Red Sox fan. Uh, he worked for the Associated Press, AP. And he went down to Central America and found out that the Reagan policy down there was, uh, was devious and uh, causing great harm. Uh, he wrote about Iran-Contra, in a word, sort of complicated, but uh, uh, they were trying to support the Contras in Nicaragua. The Contras were the counter-revolutionary folks, uh, and uh, the uh, Sandinistas were the ones that threw out Somoza and were in, in control. Uh, they were feared to be communists, and well, I have to be careful here, um, Arschloch people like Bill Casey, the head of the uh, of the CIA at the time, and Ronald Reagan's uh, advisors like Weinberger were saying that uh, ah the Russians are going to come up through Nicaragua, through New Mexico, up into Texas if we don't stop them in Nicaragua. Okay, long story short, Bob Perry went down there, found out the real scoop, found out that this scheme whereby uh, the countries could still be funded, even though Congress had cut off the funding, uh, that this scheme was run out of the White House by uh, Ali North, a guy who was working in the National Security Council. He wrote about it. Uh, finally, it came out. Everything that Bob wrote was true, even though he had a lot of trouble getting it through his editors. He became a big uh, persona, so to speak. So much so that Newsweek invited him down to be one of their reporters. Oh, so step up from AP Newsweek. And Bob explains two weeks after he came to Newsweek, he was already having a little trouble getting some of his things through the editors, but he was invited to a soiree. The head of Newsweek in Washington says, look, their corporate is coming down. The president of Newsweek coming down. Uh, we're going to have a little soiree of, don't uh, be a small people. And sure enough, Bob describes it. All men, uh, a congressman from Wyoming, his name was uh, Cheney. Uh, across from me was General Brent Scowcroft, who had just left being national security advisor. Anyhow, we were having this great shrimp cocktail when Scowcroft, uh, out of the blue, said, now, my successor, John Poindexter, Admiral Poindexter, is coming to uh, to testify before Congress on Tuesday, and I would advise him to make sure he tells the Congress that we never told Ronald Reagan anything about Iran-Contra. Now, as Bob describes it, he's not used to this kind of milieu, right? So he drops his fork, shatters his shrimp cocktail glass, and without thinking, says, Joe Koskoff, uh, do I understand correctly that you would advise your successor to perjure himself before Congress? It was that quiet for about 30 seconds, says Bob. And then there was gentlemanly laughter. <laughs> and the head of Newsweek put his arm around Bob and said, now, Bob, sometimes you have to do what's right for the country. So there you have it. Sometimes you have to do what's right for the country 
And we, 12 or so men around this table, know what's right for the country. And so that's what we're going to do, Bob. Get used to it. <laughs> Guess how long Bob Perry lasted in this week? Another three or four weeks. So Bob realized there was a, it's impossible in, in the current climate. And that goes back, what, uh, mid-80s? God, that's a long time. So he started his own investigative website. It was the first one of its kind. And uh, when I started coming out and talking about what I knew to be the truth on the attack on Iraq, he recruited me. He said, now, Ray, uh, we'd like to have you come write for Consortium News. And I had read up on Bob. I said, well, that would be a pleasure. And so that's how that happened. So uh, Bob died um, a couple of, well, about four years, five years ago now. And I have to say that Bob was, he had this worth ethic of, uh, of seven days a week. And he pretty much, well, a lot of people wrote for him, but he pretty much followed things and wrote, wrote things up himself. Um, and it was too much. And as he lay in the hospital, and I visited him there about three weeks before he died, uh, he was under the influence of some cocaine or whatever, you know, that's painkiller. He looks at me and all he could do was say, all right, right, it's just too much, right? It's too much. <laughs> you got, we know that, right? It's just too much. Well, it wasn't funny. It was too much. It was too much for Bob. He succumbed to what was diagnosed as cancer, but uh, it was too much for him to keep up the pace that he was doing. And he died in, in great, uh, what's the word, disappointment. Hmm. I know because Bob told me that he was constantly in touch with Cy Hirsch, Seymour Hirsch. And they would bitterly complain to each other, what the hell has happened to, to our profession? I mean, is there nothing we can do? Cy, is there nothing we can do to, to get the word out? And so far, there was nothing that could be done. Bob died. Cy is still around. Uh, he's even older than I am. He's two years older than I am. And thank God that he's, uh, he's staying in touch and he's still got the reputation of protecting his sources and people with conscience, people with courage come to him and tell stories such as the act of war against the Nord Stream pipeline. Uh, ben, you're, uh, you're, you're muted. Thank you. Yes, sir. Um, yeah. Um, actually, this was not a question I was going to ask, but as long as it came up, you're speaking of sort of the stress and disappointment of somebody in the media. Um, uh, whether one is in the media, uh, actively in the media per se, or is speaking in a position you are, Ray, or anyone really, who is up against a system of disinformation, propaganda, entrenched interests such as are going on now, uh, how does one avoid, uh, or how do you avoid perhaps, to put it personally, um, in some sense feeling overwhelmed by what you are trying to bring to light and change? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, I guess one has to avoid um, the, the danger of becoming self-important, <laughs> thinking because you have the truth or you think you do, that ipso facto everyone should, should kind of recognize it. 
it's really tough to do that. Um, and I take my cue from some of my spiritual advisors and mentors like Dan Berrigan, uh, the Jesuit priest who stood up against the war in, or, uh, in, uh, in Vietnam. Um, he used to say, you know, uh, the uh, results of your actions are not unimportant. But the good is worth doing because it's good. Uh, Dan said that after he had been wrapped up for that uh, burning draft cards in Catonsville, Maryland. They're sitting around the sitting around the in a circle there in the only federal building in Catonsville, which was the post office. And and in his memoir, and this is worth uh, repeating very briefly, uh, he's a poet, you know, as well as a, a witness for justice. So in his memoir, uh, Daniel uh, Berrigan explains that a paragon of a FBI inspector shoved the door open, looked at all of us around that circle, saw my brother Philip in his clerks and said, you again, I'm gonna change my religion. And Dan writes, no higher compliment could come to my brother Phil. <laughs> What's the point of that? The point is you gotta keep your sense of humor. You gotta you gotta do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And the last thing I'll say here is because it's worth repeating. Uh before we gave if you excuse me for a second. Uh, I'm getting a, can you hold, hold on a second? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Ben and I sure. can, Ben and I can talk. Yeah. We'll chat. Um, oh, I can do this. Okay. It's, I thought that was off. Okay. Um, so, uh, last time I saw Dan Berrigan was in the infirmary at Fordham university where actually I, I did my graduate degree, uh, and undergraduate degree. Um, they had an excellent Russian studies program. So, uh, I saw Dan, Father Dan. He was frail. Uh, he's not too well. Uh, I the first thing I, I thought is, well, is he compass mentis still? You know. Well, I looked at his bed table, and he had about six books all stacked up with little little markers in the book. And I thought, oh, there's a good chance. So I said, Father Dan, I'm going to see Ed Snowden two weeks from now. We're going to Moscow to give him an award for integrity and intelligence. Do you know about this, Stan? Do you know about Ed Snowden? He says, <laughs> he has a frail voice. So I said, what would you say to, what would you say to Ed? And he looked at me and he says, tell him, tell him he did the right thing. Hmm. So I says, hmm, okay. Now I was talking to Dan Ellsberg, your friend with whom you spent many days in prison back in the Vietnam days. Uh, I told him I was going to be speaking with you now. Is there a message you have for Dan Ellsberg? <laughs> and Dan Berrigan looks at me and says, yeah, yeah. Tell him, tell him he did the right thing. <laughs> okay, no, that sounds really simple, right? But there it is. Yeah. You just do the right thing. Uh, the results are, again, not unimportant, 
but they are secondary to the goodness of the act. Mm. And that's a huge burden off the shoulders of people who want to be successful. Mm. Thanks. Um, So I'm going to combine two questions here, uh, and you can juggle them in any way you wish. Um, One question is, what can't be said on media and what are the consequences if you say them? Uh, I, I sometimes hear people on podcasts pausing and saying, hmm, enough said or, uh, you know, things of this nature that indicate that they have some concern about what they're saying, that it might be lead to them being booted off the air or I don't know what else. So I'm wondering, and I don't really know, I'm rather new to all this. Uh, I don't really know what can and can't be said and what the limits are and what the consequences are. So I'm curious if you have any comments on that. And then I'm going to combine that with a different question, which is sort of related, could be related anyway, which is has to be with how you handle interview questions. You know, I think there's one school of thought, which would be you answer the question and you, uh, you know, maintain a, an honest dialogue with the interviewer. <clears throat> Another school of thought might be you take command of the interview and you use the question to as a vehicle to swirl into the point that you want to make even if it takes you somewhat far away from what the actual question was and i wonder on both scores you know what are the what are the limits to what one can say in an interview and what are the consequences if one broaches those limits and then two uh, what are your thoughts about the idea of a kind of an honest, open dialogue with a uh, interviewer versus using the interview as a vehicle to, in some cases, might require shoehorning your points into the response, even when you're not really responding to the person? I wonder what your thoughts are about those. And, and don't don't shoehorn don't shoehorn anything else into this. <laughs> to say. No, those are good questions. Okay, what's verboten? What aren't you allowed to say? Well, it wasn't too many months ago that Jeffrey Sachs, who knows a lot, and is coming out with a lot of truth now, and has an audience. He was talking to an interviewer, and he's talked about the U.S. blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline. Oh, <laughs> that was the end of the interview. <laughs> Come off right there. <laughs> Now, that's still the case. It's been a week or so, huh? Since Cy Hirsch's story came out. Uh, will people be prohibited? Well, that, if you say those kinds of things, you'll be either cut off or you'll be demeaned. Uh, you'll be called what? You'll be called a conspiracy theorist. Now, it, it's probably worth reminding people that conspiracy theorist was a charge that got its real life when John Kennedy was killed. The CIA and others were suspected of doing this, and the former head of the CIA was named the principal person of the Warren Commission to find out what happened to JFK. His name was Alan Dulles, an incredibly crafty man, who, well, anyhow, he was he was put in charge of the pretty much of the who who came and talked to the Warren Commission. Now, 
there were a lot of people back in the day, and I remember it well, 1963, 64, they said, mm, wait a second, that doesn't force. I mean, the CIA is is suspected of having had a hand in this, and you're getting Alan Dulles to the... And you know what the response was? Ha! Conspiracy theorists. You're a conspiracy theorist. We don't want to hear any more from conspiracy theorists. <laughs> okay, well, it worked. Only now are we seeing that the FBI and the CIA are sitting on very sensitive materials that should have, by act of Congress, been released by now, and they are still refusing to let the President of the United States release these records. That's exactly right. You heard me right. They are, <laughs> Trump admitted. He got up in the morning and said, I'm going to release these, the rest of these, the rest of these documents. And in the afternoon, he got up and he said, uh, correct that. I'm not going to release these documents because the FBI and the CIA says I can't do that right now. We're going to revisit it in six months. Suffice it to say, they never revisited that six months. So what am I saying here? I'm saying that if you say these verboten words, you'll be either <laughs> the interview will end right there at did with Jeffrey Sachs, or uh, you'll be called a conspiracy theorist and they'll do their best to marginalize you. Now, as for the tactics to use in interviews, uh, you know, <laughs> I would simply say that there's a biblical uh, reference uh, where Jesus says he was supposed to be gentle as doves, but clever as serpents. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, we're real, we do really good with the dove stuff, okay? Uh, if we're supposed to be clever as serpents, and we have an opportunity, usually pretty rare, to get our voice heard, to get essential facts aired that have been smothered in other media, I think it's all fair in love and war to be serpent-like and answering questions in such a way that you make the point you want to make. Now, a clever interviewer will interrupt you and say, that's not what I asked. Here's what I asked. And that's okay. You can then answer the question, but give it a try. That's pretty much, hmm. uh, I admit, what I do. <laughs> Thanks, Ray. That's good to hear. Interesting to hear. Um, I have, uh, I'll uh, try it again as a two-part question again. <clears throat> Let's think about the people that we're talking about, the neocons, for instance, just to take a group. Um, uh Actually, let me go back just for a second and reveal a quick personal story about when I was in D.C. and I was doing speaking and things of this nature, uh, again, years ago. Um, when I first arrived in D.C., I was uh, convinced that the people who were the, the hawks, the ones at that time who were trying to deploy first strike weapons and that they argued that this was necessary for security, uh, first strike weapons, this is, you know, again, sort of putting... Uh, Cuban-style weapons in Europe uh, near, you know, surrounding Russia with these things uh, in the way that we would not tolerate with Cuba or certainly wouldn't tolerate with Canada or Mexico. But I viewed these people as kind of evil, um, and I was fighting for the good. Uh, and, you know, I did a good job arguing, debating, et cetera, et cetera. But at some point, I read a couple of really good articles that put forward the technical 
strategic warfighting arguments for stabilizing deterrence by using highly accurate first strike weapons. And I was not persuaded, but I saw that there was a logic to what they were saying. <clears throat> and it mildly shook my 100% certainty. Excuse me one second. They're vacuuming in my hall here, and I need to tell them to stop. You're good. <laughs> Give me one second, please. You're, you're I'll good. let you guys. You're good. Tommy, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I loved your answer about the uh, <clears throat> the dove and the, the serpents. It is kind of a... Uh... You know, in a time where there is there is mainstream censorship being done by the government under the guise of private companies, yeah, you kind of got to fight back. Kinda, sorry, kinda, sorry, guys. You're good. <laughs> kind of serpent-like. You kind of got to... Sorry, guys. Have, yeah. yeah. No, you're good. Keep going. A anyway, um, I, I read this article. I think it was actually an article by uh, uh, Sturgeon, Peeney and, uh, Sturgeon Keeney and Wolfgang Panofsky um, called uh, N Mad versus Nuts. Mutually Assured Destruction versus Nuclear Utilization Targeting Strategy. It was a funny title. It was in Foreign Affairs. <laughs> anyway, you know, I read a few things like that, and I read some other stuff, and I read some detailed books and all this, and I thought, you know, I think they're wrong, but they're they're not totally crazy. I, I sort of I suddenly had a little bit of respect for them, and it actually turned out by the end. I, at one point, I was debating someone from from actually a special assistant to Richard Pearl, and. Um, you know, we really established a connection because he understood that I respected and I didn't think he was evil. And uh, he also respected some of my knowledge. And um, and it actually made me a better discussant, debater, whatever. So that's all background. What I really want to ask is this question of how one views the people who are what I believe are creating these problems. Uh, you know, the Victoria Newlands, the uh, Jake Sullivan's, the Anthony Blinken's, et cetera, et cetera. The jo I'll leave Joe Biden out of this. <laughs> I don't put him in the same league, <laughs> but maybe I should. Um, but uh, I wonder how you view ethically, spiritually, whatever these people. Are they well-intentioned but misguided? Are they in some sense evil uh, in terms of uh, knowing you know, people who distort the truth in order to somehow do evil in the world. Uh, in any case, I just wonder how you how you view all this stuff ethically. Um, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I'll, I'll keep my second question separate. Okay, good. Yeah, I, uh, uh, I'm i a, a person of faith. Uh, and uh, let me just give you a little vignette, very brief. Uh, a fellow Catholic, a, a woman I knew quite well, uh, back about 30 years ago, she came up to me and she said, you know, I don't think God is listening to my prayers anymore. I said, why? She said, well, it's really, really depressing because every time Dick Cheney goes into the hospital with one of his complicated heart problems, I pray so hard and he always gets better. <laughs> that's to put a little light tone on this okay yeah yeah i am a person of faith and i don't believe anyone is inherently eagle evil nor do i think there is such a thing as a uh outcast or a illegal person okay so uh what happens to these people 
Victoria Newland, I haven't really researched this, but I know she spent at least a summer, maybe a year or so, in the Soviet Union. Uh, sometimes a person like that, something bad happens to them. Maybe something really bad happened to Victoria Newland and helped instill this, this obvious hatred toward all things Russian. Um, how about those uh, sophomores, as I call them, uh, Jake Sullivan and Anthony Blinken. Well, there I see more, uh, you know, I'm a, this is a re reverse prejudice that I have as a proletarian person who grew up in the Bronx. Uh, it's really sad for me to see that people were subjected to the kind of education, the kind of privilege that they were given to believe they were really exceptional, maybe even indispensable. And I don't think it's easy for them to get out of that mindset. And so what did they end up doing? They end up getting a job with Joe Biden and telling the Chinese in, in, in the epitome of imperialist language, look, <laughs> uh, we're, we're running a game here in Washington. You have to abide by the rules-based order. And we're going to, we get the rules and forget about everything. Hello, they did that. Two months after they took power, the Chinese, <laughs> five millennia of experience, of lots of experience with Western imperialists. They did the same thing with, with Russia. They don't seem to be able to, to grasp that uh, we're on the short end of the, the old Russia-China triangle, you know? It used to be sort of equilateral. Now it's sort of like isosceles with... Russia and China having the long end of the stick, and we at the short end of the stick. They don't seem to realize that. Uh, last thing I'll say on that score is that when they were preparing Biden for his first face-to-face, -face, his only face-to-face -face with Putin, happened on June 16th of 2001, okay? Uh, what did Biden say he told Putin? He says, well, I, I don't want to uh, divulge exactly what I said, but I, I told Putin that we know, we know you're being squeezed by China. <laughs> we know that uh, you've got a very long, miles long, thousands of miles long border with China, that they're going to be not only the supreme economic, but supreme military power. And we know, we know what you have to. So we understand that China is squeezing you. Now, that was probably something that Blinken and Sullivan read at whatever school they went to two decades ago. And that was that was true three, four, five decades ago. And I know because that was my portfolio at the CIA, all right? But not now, for God's sake. Now the, the squeezing is a is a fraternal embrace. Whoops. Just spilled something here. The squeezing is a fraternal embrace and uh you know uh that's big because there has been a tectonic shift in what the russians used to the soviets used to call the, the world correlation of forces and that tectonic shift is russia china against the united states and if i didn't mention this before that's precisely what putin said he couldn't quite understand how it could possibly be uh that the u.s would take on china at the same time it's taking on Russia, it's, it's in his words, crazy. And, you know, at, at the 
risk of appearing to be in Putin's pocket, I think any rational person, well, Kissinger, whoever, Brzezinski would say it's crazy too. So why are they doing it? It's this mindset that they can do whatever the hell they want, as elitist people believe. And I just wish that they had grown up in the Bronx like me and learn a little bit about the real world. <laughs> Thanks, Ray. I'm going to jump to uh, two uh, more kind of specific questions of a less spiritual nature. I may get to back to some of these other ones in a minute, but um, uh, imagine you are talking to, I'll, I read my notes here. I'll just instead of trying to read them and then paraphrase them. I'll just read it. Imagine, imagine you, you, you could talk a little louder. Uh, oh, sure. Is this any better? Yeah, uh, yeah I'll, I'll just talk louder. Um, sure. Imagine you are talking to a group that knows nothing about Russiagate and you have only five minutes to explain what it is. Could you take a shot, taking no more than five minutes, and I'm going to time you, at least I'll imagine I will, to explain what the term Russiagate refers to, uh, what it's about, what it entails, and keep it really simple and build it from the ground up, assuming that the audience knows nothing about it. Uh, thank you. Okay, Ben, uh, do timing if you can. I'll, and, uh, I'll, I'll, yeah, Tommy, will you do that? Thank you. Yeah, please do that. Oh, okay, okay. great. Tommy, do that. Good. Okay, go. Russia Gate. Uh, Russia Gate emerged uh, during the campaign of 2016 when it became clear that uh, uh, Donald Trump was leaving himself open to being. Uh, cavorting, as some people were calling it, with the Russians. Okay, then when the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, emails were pilfered, and when Julian Assange of WikiLeaks published them right before the Democratic National Convention, they were very devastating they indicated that Hillary Clinton had stolen the nomination from Bernie Sanders by tipping the scales. So Bernie didn't have a chance, okay? They needed to divert attention from that. And what, what was the solution? And I think it was, I think it was Sullivan, Jake Sullivan, I came up with the solution. Let's blame it on Russia. <laughs> Let's say the Russians hacked into the Democratic National Committee to make sure that Donald Trump would win. Now that stuck, okay? Everyone believed that. And in December of 2017, uh, the head of the cyber firm who was supposed to look at this, did look at it. He said, well, there's no evidence that anyone hacked into the Democratic National Committee, uh, not the Russians, not anybody. Uh, and so what we had been saying, veteran intelligence people, that it was not hacked, but it was copied and put on a little thumb drive and taken to WikiLeaks that way, the Russians had nothing to do with it. That has been clear since December of 2017 by the testimony of the cyber firm that looked into it, and it has been completely uh, suppressed by the United Times, by the United by the New York Times and everybody else. So what's the implications of that? So this time, 
seven years ago. Okay, 20, yeah, this time it all started. So American people have been brainwashed, not too strong a word, folks, brainwashed into thinking the Russians were responsible for, God knows, Donald Trump. Now, I think he was the worst president ever, okay? But to, to blame somebody for Donald Trump, well, that's big in my view. And the Trump derangement syndrome set in. So if you said anything that happened to coincide with what Trump said, you, you were in not only Trump's pocket, you were in Putin's pocket. Suffice it to say that during these six or seven years, Americans have been have been taught that Russians are evil, evil that Putin is the, is the devil incarnate. And this has prepared in a very dangerous way the, the fertile field where uh, most American citizens believing this can be led like sheep to slaughter, like sheep to slaughter, uh, into a war that could, could end all of us. That's not hyperbole. Uh, what happens in Ukraine could end all of us. And would the American people go along with this? So far, I'm, I'm sad to say they probably would. That's the consequential nature of this blackening of Russia, blackening of Putin. And nobody with any sense or any nobody who was educated on Russia before the current crop of Russian specialists uh, would dispute that. But we don't get any airtime. We don't get any radio time. We don't get any exposure in the media. Thanks. It came in one right. minute early. All right. Whoa. Well, okay. <laughs> um, so this ties into the uh, the reasons for thinking it was a um, a thumb drive, for instance, as opposed to an external hack. Um, I had heard you, I believe, or maybe I heard um, uh, William Binney. Mm -hmm. I heard someone speak from within your organization, veterans. Uh, intelligence professionals for sanity. Is that correct? Yeah. And and actually, just to give a, a shout out, it's the first time I ever used that word. You can tell what an outsider I am to media. <laughs> um, uh, your organization produces sort of detailed statements every three or four or six months that, um, and you release them through antiwar.com or where that, like if, if I wanted to encourage people to look at those or you wanted to, where would they find these? Sure. Well, uh, the first one was done on the day that Colin Powell spoke uh, at the UN and told all those lies. We knew they were lies. We know that our we knew that our former colleagues were in part responsible for those lies. This is when this is before the Iraq War when he argued that there were evidence of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq back in 2002 was it or something or is that about right? No, this is uh, March 5th 2003 2003 so two or three weeks before the attack on Iraq. We knew that wasn't so so we did a same day memo as we used to. You know, we we're current intelligence people. And we said that the, it got to the White House, uh, it got on AFP, Agence France Presse. Uh, so this was uh, widely circulated. We got a little play on this, but of course, it didn't change anybody's mind. So since then, we've been publishing every so often when when the uh, when the circumstances dictate that we, we do what we used to do, namely, do a little memo for the president, make sure that he knows what we think, 
what we intelligence analysts think, not what the Pentagon thinks, not what the, the State Department thinks. It's it's like the unit that Truman had in mind to give, give him what he called untreated, right? Untreated intelligence, okay? That was our stick. That's what made us different. Uh, we could go around Washington and say, we have no agenda. We have no policy agenda. And everybody look at us and say, right. They <laughs> go believe it, as you know, as you know from, from working there, okay? Anyhow, uh, our last one was just, uh, what, about three weeks ago, where we said, you know, uh, with all these tanks now going to Ukraine, they got to come too late to the party. The Russians are on the move, and we can't believe that the head of the CIA is still saying, well, we're in a quiescent period now. Wait till the spring, and the Ukrainian army is going to do a counteroffensive. I mean, nothing could be farther from the truth, Mr. President. If you don't, if that's what you believe, we're in trouble deep. So uh, hats off to my, my colleagues. Uh, there's some pretty serious people in our group. Uh, and I'll just say that the name comes from what we had been doing all through 2002, that is comparing notes on this wonderful new vehicle called email, okay? Before you write something for publication that says Dick Cheney is lying through his teeth, well, you like to have it like in the old days where you could turn to the next desk and say, hey, Bob, you think I'm going off on, you think this is crazy or you, know, you like to have a sanity check? <laughs> That's why we call ourselves uh, veteran intelligence professionals for sanity. That and also the fact that there wasn't a hell of a lot of sanity going around in Washington when we created ourselves exactly, well, not exactly, uh, 20 years ago, last month, January 2000. Yeah. Great. And I guess implicit in this is that the current crop of maybe not the low level, lower level analysts, but the at least the senior people in the intelligence organizations that are actually tasked with providing dispassionate, accurate, unbiased, unvarnished information are actually sort of wrapped up in a political game and pushing for certain views. Is that a correct understanding? I'm afraid it is. And that's a really a tragedy because if you were president, I mean, wouldn't you like to have one place to go? Just one place where you could get a straight answer? <laughs> yeah. Why we were created and that has been pretty much dissipated. I don't know who who volunteers to become a CIA analyst anymore, but uh, I'm told yeah. that many of them are just targeteers now picking out this or that place to uh, to do a drone strike on. I see. Um, any case, coming back to Russiagate now for a second, in terms of the understanding that that this was not an external hack, but it was an internal, somebody connected with that world, leaked it and downloaded it onto a thumb drive from the actual server at the DNC, I guess. Um, uh, the evidence for that, I recall that it had to do with download rates, with how quickly information could be sucked out of the machine and that it apparently there was a trail left that it occurred at a rate too quick to be accounted for something that occurred externally over the wires mm -hmm. as opposed to a thumb drive which can just suck it right out mm -hmm. uh, am i remembering that correctly and do you want to add anything to that well or, or correct anything about that no that's correct and we we understood that 
uh, we got the information to support that in July of 2017. But in December of 2016 is when we first caught on to the notion that the Democrats were going to use this to denigrate uh, the incoming president, that they were going to make it all but impossible for him not only to develop a decent relationship with Russia, but also to succeed in any of his policies. Okay, now I don't, I don't begrudge uh, opposition to the other policies, but I thought it was, I thought it was pretty sane in saying, look, why can't we deal with, why could we have a sane relationship with Russia? So. Uh, we looked at the evidence as it existed in December of 2016, as Trump was waiting to come into office. And we wrote a memo based on two of our members who happened to be former technical directors at the National Security Agency and had joined our VIPS ranks. And uh, we also had the benefit of the charts that Ed Snowden had released when he came out into Hong Kong. So we had those charts, we had all this expertise, and these people spoke from their experience. And what they said simply was, <clears throat> if it were a hack, if it went over the internet, NSA would ipso facto have it. If there was a 10% chance they didn't have it, they would collect it from some of their liaison people, the five eyes or whatever, okay? And this is the way it works. See this chart from Ed Snowden? This are the little points in the in the internet where they where they uh, monitor this stuff. It goes into packets. The packets are released. They're put together at the other end of things. NSA would certainly know it. And so our conclusion is that it could not have been a hack. It must have been some a, a, a copy, really. You, you put a thumb drive in there or some, some kind of other external storage device. You put it in there and you copy the information. You put it in your pocket and you take it where it can be divulged. Now, that was December uh, uh, nine, <laughs> December 2016. Now, that's sort of a negative sort of argument. In other words, uh, you can't prove a negative. You can't say, well, it couldn't possibly because we would have. So in in July, we got evidence that uh, this fellow, uh, Guccifer II, <laughs> entity that we don't know who he was, could be FBI or somebody like that, FCIA. Anyhow, uh, they claimed that uh, he was the Russian guy and that he had downloaded this, this other information and we looked at that information, we saw that it couldn't have been a hack, that, that it had to be something that uh, a thumb drive could accommodate at the speed with which it was, which with it was copied, and that that rate was exactly the same speed as a thumb drive can accommodate. So that was additional evidence. We had already said the story. Now we had positive evidence that the people that were being relied on as sources for this Kakemimi story were duplicitous, were saying things that could not, from principles of physics and the, the knowledge and experience of our two former technical directors from the NSA, could not be true. So that raised real hackles. I mean, the Democrats were really up at arms, so much so that the reporter that reported this in the Nation magazine 
was fired after a couple of months. It turns out he, he was exactly right on the mark. His name was Patrick Lawrence, long-term correspondent writer for the nation, but the Democratic uh, people, bureaucrats in, at the nation just couldn't abide by the notion that what they had been saying about a Russian hack, that couldn't have been from a technical point of view. Now, let me just add this. When I was at, at CIA, I was also working as a national intelligence officer for the director with overseership of all the intelligence agencies, okay? And when I was given a task to do, it was by the director of all these agencies. And so I could, I had them at my beck and call. Here's an example, okay? Um, the question came up, Turkey invaded Cyprus. Congress cut off arms to Turkey. That was terrible, according to Henry Kissinger. You can't cut arms off to Turkey. So we have to resume the arms because if we don't, the Turks will close down our intelligence collection facilities in Turkey. And with those are essential. We can't do without them. Okay. So McGovern says, well, we, we find out if that's really true. Uh, let me find out, uh, Mr. Colby, if it really is the case that we can't do without those intelligence collection facilities in Turkey, because it looks like Henry Kissinger sort of tried to use this. It may be true. Or... So Colby says, call Admiral Showers. Admiral Showers, he works in, in this collection department of the, of the intelligence community. I call Admiral Showers, I need to talk to you. Okay, I'll be right over. Oh, you're working for the director of central intelligence? That's the kind of response of you next year. He comes into my office and he tells me, look, Ray, <laughs> we don't worry about those collection facilities in Turkey. We got stuff that's going to be going whoa, way up in space that will more than compensate for the loss of that. They're coming online next month. Give me a break. Kissinger is exaggerating. What happens? McGovern writes all that up, gets it approved sends it out and makes a real enemy of Henry Kissinger. That was our job, okay? That was our job in those days. And that's why we could kind of tell the truth. Now, I'm going to ask you, Ben, how I got off on this tangent. What was the question? <laughs> uh, um, that's a good question. I'm, I'm already... <laughs> Tommy, do you remember? I, I do. I, 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 I've I, asked I, so question. I do not. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm used to the podcast just taking its form. Yeah, going... I, I, it, it, whatever whatever the question was, it led to that, Ray. It, it was a good answer. So uh, <laughs> I think it, it's not a waste. Um, let me ask you something a little bit different, which would be, <clears throat> and this is good for me personally. I mean, obviously, I've I've come to some tentative ideas about how to gather information based on limited time I have. But I wonder, especially given your you know deep background in intelligence itself, for somebody who is uh, you know, a regular regular citizen, regular smart citizen who wants to really figure out what's going on and has limited time to do it, uh, what should they be doing in terms of, you know, what resources to use and also what should their mindset be as they approach trying to spend their half an hour a day figuring out what they're doing instead of reading the New York Times or the Washington Post or a half hour in addition to that? Um, I wonder if you have any advice 
Ben, that, that's a real tough one because uh, all too many American families, uh, their parents come home, both of them working, they feed the kids, put up their feet on the couch and turn on Fox News, for God's sake, or some other quasi-news entertainment thing. Um, in other words, economics dictate that there's very limited time for people to tune in. But your question is is needs to be answered, and that is that uh, you know people have to get used to uh, alternative sources of information. Uh, I've worked for Consortium News. In answer to your question about the VIPS memo, uh, what's the word? The deposit. Uh, they have that. Uh, Anti-war has been publishing us more recently, uh, but. Uh, you know, I could say, tune into antiwar.com, uh, consortiumnews.com. Uh, but, you know, it's it's not all that easy. Well, my, <laughs> I almost forgot. My son, uh, my son, who is my uh, webmaster, uh, says, Dad, if you don't mention our website, I'm not going to put any more sweat and tears into this. Oh, thing. please mention it. <laughs> What is it? <laughs> it works really hard on it. It's raymcgovern.com. Not hard to remember, okay? Yeah. My, my son always says, now, now, Dad, when you say that, always add, if you don't get it, you don't get it. And it's, it will be in the description, as always. It'll be right in the description. Yeah, I, actually, I want to add something there, which is I have periodically clicked through to a piece that Ray has up on his website or a piece that he's linked to through his website, but I never really poked around or, you know, took the time to kind of like scroll down the page. And there's a lot of good stuff there. And um, I, I mean, I have to say, what, sometimes it occurs to me like, you know, maybe what a person can do. I mean, I see the time constraints on myself. I'm busy trying to market the book and this and that. How do I keep up with things? How do I learn? How do I go deeper? And, you know, maybe it just amounts to picking just one of the many places that are potentially good and really just keeping up with that one place, which may not take that long to do every day. And um, it occurs to me that your place, your site could be an excellent place for that and provide access to, I guess, material at other places that you've in a sense curated and said, ah, this one's especially good at looking at, especially worth looking at. So uh, maybe that's a thought. Well, thanks, Ben. You know, uh, what I usually should also add is that uh, my son has made it really easily searchable <clears throat> so if you're looking for something you just put into the search engine there what you're looking for and i i do it all the time when i'm looking when i'm writing something which then refers something that i did before or even something that somebody else did before that i thought was worth putting on the site so not only is it uh, available and you can see what most recent things i've written but if you have a question that goes back a ways, you just enter it into the search little window there the and, uh, and it comes up. So I'm glad that you found it useful. Yeah, yeah, it was quite, uh, looks, looks great. Um, jumping back to a more spiritual kind of question for a second. I think I know the answer to this, but I'm not sure. And I think you've touched on it in some ways, but did you in any way undergo an inner change, let's call it spiritual or something of this nature that led to your current activism? Or was it simply that you always had the same sort of mindset of trying to do 
right, do the right thing and do right by the country. Uh, but then you started to find that the circumstances that the country was not acting in a way that you thought was appropriate and you wanted to set it back on the right path. So uh, the question of uh, inner spiritual change versus simply that you became aware of circumstances that were very troubling to you, even based on your previous way of thinking. Ben, good question again. Um, I think it was, it could be characterized as a spiritual growth, uh, not an immediate uh, uh, transformation. Um, I grew up as a, uh, what we called a uh, uh, Bronx Irish Catholic, right? So uh, that meant that uh, conferred at baptism was membership in the local union and in the Democratic Party. <laughs> I read a, led a sort of uh, uh, a sheltered life. I thought uh, communists were really, really, really bad. Now I know that uh, the same uh, red diaper type communists uh, that I could sort with now were not really, really, really bad. And they probably had legitimate grievances against capitalism, okay? Long story short, in my spiritual development, I ended up teaching at the most progressive Catholic parish in Washington, D.C., Holy Trinity, run by the Jesuits. And that gave me exposure to new learnings and seminars that would teach about justice. And I learned that, that the God of the Hebrew scriptures, Yahweh, Christian scriptures, Jesus, the... Uh, Islam traditions, the prophet, the only thing they really cared about was doing justice, not building churches, doing justice, taking care of the orphan, the widow, the refugee. It's right there. It's all over the Bible, Christian as well as Hebrew, and in Islamic writings too. It's hard to miss. And so why was why was Jesus killed? Well, you know, I, uh, <laughs> a little telling vignette, but I move in ecumenical circles now, not only ecumenical, but interfaith, but I had a, uh, a Catholic woman who was studying for the Lutheran priesthood because she can't be a priest in the Catholic church, which is, which is the first justice issue I did civil disobedience against. Anyhow, uh, she was uh, being picked up by her husband at the seminary where she was at Lutheran Cemetery where she was seminary where she was studying. And so their five-year-old girl was with them and this uh, and all of a sudden uh, they came in and they they saw this uh, uh, cross on the wall. And then over here was the Catholic section and the, it was a crucifix with Jesus. And the little five-year-old looked to his dad, her dad, and he says, Daddy, what happened? <laughs> In other words, on the Protestant crosses, you don't see the, the corpus, right? Uh, this is pretty gruesome. So what happened? Well, what I learned was what happened is that Jesus spoke out for justice, that he cared about the orphan, the widow, and the refugee. And he opposed the authorities, Roman and Jewish uh, 
Jewish religious authorities. And so they had to get rid of him. He could have died peacefully in his bed as a Hebrew prophet if he didn't take on a system. <laughs> now, that's a far cry from having learned earlier on that Jesus died for my sins or for what Adam and Eve did. I'm low. I no longer believe that. What I believe now is that Jesus got killed because he stood up for justice and that there's lots of people in the Hebrew scriptures and in the Islamic scriptures that did the same. So, so as I say, my first civil disobedience was standing at mass for five years, not five years, four and a half years straight at Holy Trinity as a, a symbol of the fact that there was something radically wrong here in this congregation where women were deprived of presiding just because they were women. Uh, then I moved over to, uh, I worked in the inner city and I saw what happens to people who are marginalized. Marginalized. I was president of Bread for the City, the board in Washington for several years. And then I worked with the poor at the Church of the Savior and its ministries. So uh, in the process of all this, I got a chance to do a uh, gentleman's master's degree, <laughs> six core courses, no big thesis at Georgetown University. And I was taught by Jesuits back from Central America. Jesuits had stuck their necks out. They were different from the ones I had studied under 30 years previous at Fordham. Uh, they knew about justice and they knew about suffering for justice. So that was a whole new experience. And it, it, it sort of strengthened my, my new consciousness that look, the only thing that, that matters really is courage standing up uh as thomas aquinas said courage well what is courage it's a virtue but it's the foundation of all other virtues uh without courage all other virtue is specious aquinas's word now he was wrong about, about, about a lot of things but he's right about courage so what i try to do is uh follow people like dan berrigan people who stood up people who oppose things that are unjust i got beat up several times for that when i was living in washington one reason why my my wife is so happy to be down here in north carolina is because it it <laughs> i can't go to i can't go to criticize hillary clinton or uh, um, donald rumsfeld or anybody like that and get beat up anymore uh, even though uh, that would be my inclination. I don't know if that's an answer to mm. you. Good, good. Uh, Tommy, just so I know, how much time do we have left? Uh, uh, and It's 3.42 right now. We got to be finished uh, in like eight minutes. And But I was going to say, I'll email you both after this, and I think we should set up a, a part two so we can keep working through your questions. Okay. I, I actually covered most of them. All right. We, All right. I, I may have more, but we'll, let's, we'll email for sure. Okay. Um, uh so I guess I just have two last questions, Ray, uh, and I'll ask them both at once since time is very limited. Uh, one, and this is uh, was actually not on my list, but I it came up since you just mentioned that you have been beat up. Do you ever feel afraid? <clears throat> excuse me, uh, in your speaking out, whether uh, being assaulted by whoever on the street or who might strongly oppose what you're doing or even from other countries, uh, but also from the U.S. government. And that ties into the question that uh, another question that wasn't on my list, but I see behind you uh, two copies of a particular book on the assassination of JFK. 
called, uh, I believe the title is JFK and the Unspeakable, which I also own. I've read a part of it so far, but I'll, I'll probably get to the rest of it eventually. But I just have other things that I'm focusing on. Um, and I wonder if you would speak of the question of the question of any fear you might have experienced, uh, whether, as I said, from individuals, uh, non-government actors or from government actors. <clears throat> and then two, uh, what is it about that book that leads you to keep it behind you uh, and visible, whether as inspiration for yourself or in order to try to, you know, get other people interested in it? Uh, I don't know what your motive is, but uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on those two questions. Thanks. Uh, the book was it was an accident. Uh, I happened to see it behind my shoulder one time, and I said, "That's really good backdrop." And <laughs> it's the best book on the Kennedy assassination. Um, uh, it's uh, about fifteen years old now, uh, and most people don't even know of it, but. Uh, you know, he was in possession of all the all the information up until that time, and uh, it's a it's a very very good book. Now, uh, as I mentioned, John Kennedy was responsible for getting me down to Washington, as he was to several other people. Uh, uh, we were a good crew that came down there in '63, '64. Um, it's hard to it's hard to uh, watch what's happened to Washington since. As far as fear is concerned, I'll confess to being a little bit irresponsible. Um, I haven't really been thinking too much of my wife, uh, who, who needs me now more than she ever did, uh, sort of like a, her primary caregiver. Uh, and I've taken some risks that uh, uh, that I probably shouldn't have. Uh, one in particular was uh, going on the U.S. boat to Gaza in 2011, the year after several people were shot up and killed, including one American citizen on, uh, on the ship that was sailing from Turkey to try to get to Gaza. Uh, this, in a word, was a U.S. boat chartered in the US. I had all kinds of really neat people on it, progressives, uh, myself. Aaron Maté was uh, one of the people there working at that time for uh, for Amy Goodman, Democracy Now! Uh, and we were trying to get to Gaza uh, just to show that, well, people know that Gaza is the, the biggest uh, concentration camp still existing in, in, in the world. Now, we were told, or I was told, before I left, that the people in the National Security Council would be just delighted to see us coming back in coffins. Coffins. Now, uh, in the event, uh, the White House leaned on the Greek authorities to prevent us from leaving the harbor in Athens. So we never even got halfway to Gaza. Uh, so the Israelis didn't have a chance to shoot us up, but there was no indication, not only, there was no indication that the White House had told the Israelis, please don't shoot these people up, or that they even told the Israeli authorities, 
uh, not to shoot us up, okay? Now, a month later, I got confirmation of what I had been told from an un unlikely source. His name is Craig Murray. He was ambassador, British ambassador to Uzbekistan. He's a very large progressive person. And he said, when I wrote that, when I wrote what I had been warned against about coming back in a coffin, he said, now I know Ray to be a pretty reliable guy, but this sounded sound a little old. So I, cho I chose to look through my own sources in the foreign office, talk directly to people in Washington. They confirmed, not from the NSC, but from Hillary Clinton's own people, that was fine. Just as soon have these people come back in coffins. Well, now, should I have gone on that thing? Probably not if I cared more about my family, but I wanted to make, I wanted to make sure that, that I was aboard, literally, uh, this kind of danger because of the oppression of Palestinians. And I have to say that they are the archetypical widow orphan refugee. So um, other than that, I've not been really overly concerned. I'm 83 years old now. Uh, they dismissed me because I'm so old and because I uh, can't possibly know anything about what's going on because I don't have access to classified information. <laughs> and just a word on that, you know, as you know, Ben, you can learn an awful lot from unclassified information if you pay attention, okay? And the epitome of that was Bill Casey, troglodyte, anti-Russian, anti-Soviet guy who came in to be head of the CIA under Ronald Reagan. First cabinet meeting, February 1981, okay? Now, I know, I had a friend who was there. And when it came to Casey's time to say what his organization was doing, he said two things. The first was, you know, he, he spoke in an almost unintelligible way. He says, you know, uh, when I came in here, I found out that all my analysts, my, my Russian analysts, they depend on 80% unclassified information from magazines and newspapers and speeches. My God! <laughs> That's in case he ran spies during World War II, right? So if you didn't get it from a spy, oh, yeah, it didn't matter. Well, he, did, he learned gradually that that's what it always was. 80% now immediately available, about 90%, okay? And the second thing Casey said is this, and it has everything to do with what we were talking about, the media. He said, and I see if I can get the exact quote. He said, we know we will have achieved our mission when the, most of the American people believe what we tell them to believe and we persuade them that what we say is so. Okay. Now, I mean, Casey, I don't know where he is up or down, but he's probably rejoicing in how successful he was because now you don't have the CIA feeding sources. Now you have them on MSNBC. <laughs> If I got the 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 commentators, for God's sake. So uh, it, the word is simply this: that uh, um, since so much uh, information is available, uh, I feel confident in making my judgments. Uh, the most apropos one is that Russia is about to move 
as far west as they can, and they can go all the way to uh, the Dnieper River in Ukraine and even farther as, you know, as far as the Romanian border, for God's sake, if we don't deal, if we don't deal with these folks. Uh, and that's a, and, and by deal, you mean negotiate a settlement? Yeah, they, I don't think the Russians want to take over all of Ukraine. I'm sure they don't. They'd like to do a deal, but they want to be secure. They don't want to have artillery raining down on them. So how about a demilitarized zone along the Dnieper River, a natural divider? And there has been a broad hint from Putin himself, which has been totally missed in the in the media, offering to deal about Odessa. Odessa is right on the Dnieper River. It's a Russian city primarily. But Putin has said, look, Odessa can be either a Yabloka Razdora, an apple of discord. I mean, you know your mythology, right? Apple of discord. Or it can be a way to resolve differences, to get together and talk about this, to find an end to this, this conflict. He said that. Nobody reads that in a newspaper. So what, I, what I'm saying here is that was a broad hint. I think that uh, Putin would stop at uh, Odessa, would deal, and in return for a, a secure uh, DMZ, demilitarized zone, uh, where uh, the, the artillery that's provided by the West will not be able to, to hit the Russian, Russian annex ports of Ukraine, uh, that would be a deal. Now, if he can't get that, well, then the chances are he'll go farther west. And who wants that? You know, Putin doesn't even want that. So this the makings of a deal, in my view. Uh, the problem is that uh, those uh, sophomores, uh, those uh, uh, people who think they're indispensable or exceptional, uh, don't think they have to deal. And this is the arrogance and this is the self-impunity that uh, Putin has accused them of. And on that, I believe he's right. Right. Well, thank you, Ray. And Tommy, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to ask Ray all these questions, which Absolutely. I would not normally have that chance. Absolutely. No, thank you both for coming on. I, just, I get to, I love these episodes because I just get to watch it. Like, I don't have to host it. You I, get to I, relax. I, 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 I just I just sit back and like watch the podcast. And then at the end of it, I'll realize that, oh, wait, this is, this is still my show. I gotta, you know, I gotta, <laughs> you I, gotta, gotta I actually gotta like two. I can't just sit here and nod. I'm like, oh, wait, I gotta, I gotta keep talking. Um, no, I love these. I, I just get to sit here and watch Mr. McGovern. Yeah. Ben, could you mention the name of your book again? Uh, sure. The book is called How the West Brought War to Ukraine. Uh, my last name is Abelo, A-B-E-L-O-W. If you search that at one of the websites or your local bookstore, you'll, you'll come up with either one of my medical textbooks or that book. Uh, and, um, you know, I encourage it. It's, uh, it's a good book. And there's plenty of other great books to read after you read it. I think this is a good starting point. And Mr. McGovern's website is Ray McGovern, M-C-G-O-V-E-R-N.com. That is in the description as well. And uh, I got two more podcasts after this, but tonight I will email you guys, and I would love to set up another one, If uh, obviously, of course, if you guys are interested. But uh, I'm going to assume you are. So I think thank, that could be really Sammy. fun. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much. If you don't mind, we got to wrap this one up. i got to prep for the next one. And uh, so Dr. Benjamin Abelow. Mr. Ray McGovern, thank you so much for your time. And I think really the takeaway is what you said, Ray. Uh, just do the right thing. That's that's the primary. Just just do the right thing. 
I, Thanks, Bobby. It's simple, but really, just do the right thing. Yeah. So, with that, gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, for watching. God bless. Recording stop. Stay safe stopped. out there. Peace.